All right, if you would be turning your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3, we'll be in verses 1 through 8 this morning. As you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I would love for you to walk away with. It's this. Though our sins affect creation, God's people, and the nations, God remains faithful in righteousness and justice. Let me say that again. Though our sins affect creation, God's people, and the nations, God remains faithful in righteousness and justice. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Zephaniah 3, 1 through 8. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed." Though this is a hard word, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, what we need to know is that chapter 3, the beginning of it, is essentially a summary with a a slight advance of chapters 1 and 2. What we see here is that, again, the people are being reminded. This is, he's talking about Jerusalem. He's not talking about some foreign nation who doesn't get it right. He's talking about his own people who are, in fact, sinning against him and being oppressive in so doing. And so he also points out that they're, they're, what they do affects the nations, right? And so we have that in summary. And in the middle, just like we had at the beginning of chapter 2, there's this peak which is just, and he is righteous, and he has not left them or forsaken them. He is still present. Now, the rest of chapter 3 is going to be an unpacking of God's reconciliation. It's actually a beautiful picture of what resurrection looks like, which is why we're doing Zephaniah for Easter. And so, it would be important for you to recognize that Zephaniah, short as it is, was probably read all at one time. So, the people would not have gotten so tangled up in chapters 1 and 2, which the point of those was to decenter them, to get them to listen, to hear, and be shocked by how gracious and how loving and how forgiving and how restoring our God is. And so we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. Uh, And so we need to make sure we understand this. Now, a question came up from last week. Uh, My wife asked the question and a couple of other folks did as well because I made this statement that how we live impacts people's eternities. Now, you're you're good reformed people. Well, you're reformed people. 
Uh, <laughs> we won't accuse you of that first part in Toto. You probably thought, what in the world? That doesn't sound like the sovereignty of God. I thought he will save whoever he will save. And yes, when we get to Romans 9, he's going to say, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. And that's the way it is. And you may be thinking, well, if my deeds could cost somebody else their eternity, then that's by work. So that's not what actually I said. And this is an important question for us because I don't think we actually believe this. So the question is this, who is most affected by your failure to live in resurrected newness of life in Christ? Who? You are. We are. When we fail to live in light of the resurrection, it drains us. Remember that we talked about how there's a malaise, a boredom oftentimes in the church that gets us into trouble. We got to do something with that resurrected energy. Now, too often what we do with it is turn on each other. Too often what we do is find someone we can go after so that energy can be used in some way, shape, or form, and we can feel like we're doing something, right? We, we love to, to, to kind of play the reformer, but never the reformed. And so we need to be careful that we, we recognize that it is us who is affected when we don't love our neighbors, when we don't serve the marginalized, or this is straight from Isaiah 58, we fail to actually be in the presence of God in a felt way, in an experienced way. That's what he tells them. He says, look, I'm glad you guys are doing all this great religious stuff. But you do it to strike with a wicked fist. You do it to, to look down on everybody who is not present with you. You do it to look down on everybody who doesn't think like you. You do it to actually oppress other people. This should not be so. If you want to experience me, come be with those who need me the most, those at the margins. He mentions the homeless and the when, when it says you are to love your neighbor, this was the context in the Old and, by the way, the New Testament. It was not someone who looks like you who can benefit you, right? Remember, even Jesus speaks to this. He says, if all you do is benefit those who love you, what have you done? Nothing, actually. Make it worse. So I would posit that many of us are dry in our faith are struggling to actually experience the goodness of God and have doubts and questions because we're not actually living out the resurrection. We are serving only ourselves. And so this is important for us to keep in mind. It is our eternity that's being affected. Now, you may be saying, did he just say I'm going to lose my salvation? No, worse, you won't appreciate it. See, we all think we're saved enough. I got in. Skin of my teeth, right? There's no trophies in heaven. Is that true? Kind of. It is. And you don't get a trophy for being great, but what you do is you, you get to, to look at the bride of Christ and your righteousness actually affects her. Now, the stuff that we think are trophies are not what God thinks are trophies. That's where it all gets mixed up into the paradox. The kind of stuff that we think God would be impressed with, he ain't. And sometimes it's a fit word spoken in due season. It's just acknowledging somebody who hasn't been around in a while. It's actually saying something nice once in a while. It's being hospitable and giving and giving of what you have, being willing to listen, which means you're in the passive seat. We'll see that in just a moment. And so it's important that we recognize it is our eternities that are being diminished in some way, shape, or form by virtue of us not living in light of the resurrection. Now, 
As we turn back to the text, let's hear again what the Lord has to say and make sure you're listening, recognizing he's talking to us in some way, shape, or form. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. Now, rebellious is pretty simple. It just means that they are going against God's law. What was God's law? Maybe you're thinking, well, there was those 10, and then it was like 600 other deals, like you couldn't eat shrimp, you couldn't wear mixed uh, nylon stuff, and, 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 which is totally, I'm glad we don't have to worry about that today. And so what, what, is, what does he actually mean? Well, remember what Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets pointed to these two things, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. So why would you have to wear a shirt that didn't look like the surrounding nations? Well, so you would actually stand out in a good way, not to look down on somebody, but so that somebody would know, hey, that person is part of the priesthood of God, and they don't eat all the same stuff we do, and they don't dress the same way we dress. I can go and talk to them about the Lord our God. They would stand out more in a missional fashion, not in a maintenance fashion. I get it, praise God, we don't have to worry about it's completed the law. We can now eat of food that was sacrificed to idols and all that, that fun stuff. But it is important that we recognize that those things were to serve a missional purpose. And so they rebelled against that. They wanted to look like all the rest of the nations. You hear this language if you've read the Old Testament, you'll hear it many times over. They wanted their king to be like the surrounding nations, which if you did a quick survey, they're all tyrants. Why would you want that? Because it makes you feel safe and it makes you feel powerful. And we have committed the same crime, have we not? And so, many times over, by the way, I'm not just pointing to one. In case you were worried, I was singling someone out. And so it is important that we recognize that they were going against the law, and they were defiled, which means they were unclean, which means they had gone syncretistic. Well, that word just means they had a smorgasbord religion, right? They were like, hey, what if we make sure Yahweh's cool, right? Like, keep him, keep him satisfied, but this, this Baal guy, he does some pretty cool stuff. He's like temple prostitution. Oh, and Molech, if you got a kid you don't like, you can sacrifice it. You can just get rid of it. That's awesome, right? That gives you all kind of freedom. So why not let's do all that? Sounding at all familiar? Do we not, in some ways, syncretize, whether it's we import nationalism in some form or fashion, yes, or we import some pet project or, or cause, right, and try to take Christianity and make it into that image, right? It's dangerous work. So we do, we tend to import things into our Christianity and try to fashion Christianity into its image instead of the other way around. And they were doing that. And it led to them being described as the oppressive city. They were oppressing two things. First, they were oppressing the truth of God which, as we know, is insanely dangerous and destructive. They were twisting it into their own image in such a way that was causing people to not be drawn to the Lord their God, but to the stuff and what they could get from it. They were becoming consumers and being consumed in the process. In addition, they were oppressing the marginalized. Who always suffers? Whenever there's war or a financial circumstance or, or a pandemic, who always suffers more? The poorest of the poor, always. And this is where we syncretize. We are actually social Darwinists when it comes to some of these things. 
Well, it's not my fault they're poor. Well, maybe they're getting what they deserve. Maybe this is, maybe this is a long line of them doing bad, making bad decisions. Is that how God treats us? Does God say to us, hey, you didn't listen the first time. I'm, we're going to hear that God within her, meaning he is still there. He has not forsaken his people. And when they go into exile, if y'all remember from Micah, who goes with them? Who chases them into exile to redeem them? God does. Woe be unto us when we blame the victim and don't offer opportunity now. Should there be some responsibility? Is it more dignifying to help someone be able to provide for themselves? Is it more dignifying for someone to be able to support themselves? Amen and amen. Yes, but sometimes the road to that end is long and costly. And so they were oppressing both God and neighbor. And here is how he describes them. Now remember, the people that he was calling to himself were described as humble. And righteous. And if you're wondering, am I humble or am I arrogant? Well, here's a pretty good way for you to test yourself. She listens to no voice. A critical aspect of humility is the willingness to listen. Now, does this show up in the New Testament? Yes, it does. James makes it very clear to us you should be quick to listen and slow to speak. A besetting sin of mine at times because I do this for a living. And sometimes I kind of am, am thought through and kind of arrived ahead of someone. But, but that's not the best way to love somebody. Right? It is an arrogant thing to, to jump to the end without letting the process unfold. It's an arrogant thing to say, I don't need to listen to you because I, I don't like you in the first place. Or, or you're, you're less than me or whatever it may be. So if you have a problem listening, you can be sure that you also have a problem with arrogance. You can be sure that you would not be described as humble. So this is a place where we as the people of God can really wrestle with, are we willing to listen? Now let me be careful here, because he's talking to the entire city. But the city is made up of individuals. If individuals don't listen, then the city don't listen. And we, the church, do we, are we in a cultural moment where it might do us some good to listen to some voices? Now, I know you maintainers just got nervous. You said, you go listen to these people, and, and next thing you know, we're going to have a popcorn machine and worship. I, that's really not that big a threat. <laughs> I just had to pick something low so as not to freak you out. I get it. Listening is dangerous. You're right, you could be influenced by someone's suffering. What are the banks of the river? What do we come back to? What, what's the thing that keeps us? Now, anybody who calls for us to get rid of Jesus in order to satisfy them, what should we do? You don't listen to that. I get it and I understand, right? Like Mark Dever has a great saying. He says, all heresy begins with the desire to reach more people. Totally understand that and I think he's right. And we have to be careful side of fences to protect ourselves from everything that could come our way that could harm us. If you were to do that, you would have to put out your eyes and make yourself deaf and stay in one spot and pray for the return of Christ. Because everything, nothing is neutral. Everything's dangerous. Unless you are continually orienting yourself and founded on Christ himself, right? Unless you're walking in light of the resurrection. You're willing to be held accountable. But this is one of the first orders of business. 
To this end, just so you know, one aspect that our church is trying to think through is on the issue of abuse, an area that the church global has been terrible at, by the way. And I mean terrible. And so there's some things that we've learned. And you may say, well, I'm glad you finally figured it out. Look, we're slow. I get it. But Jesus and and God is patient, and you should be too. You can't over-moralize us arriving late. But one of the things that we are going to do at Christ Community Church is we're going to have a committee on abuse that will advise the session on matters of abuse so that we aren't seeking to protect ourselves. Look, it's just too easy, right? It's too easy to go, this is going to be a public relations nightmare. As if that was the worst thing, right? As if it doesn't become a public relations nightmare in a podcast someday. And so it is important that we listen and we listen and we recognize, look, we, here's some places where we've gotten this really, really wrong and we want desperately to do better. And there are some ways we've, we, we have figured out in wisdom that if you want to go astray, don't listen. Just have a bunch of men in a room making decisions about whether or not a woman's story is true when if you've read The Body Keeps the Score, it's never a straight line. Not the wisest thing to do. And so it is important that we listen. There's other, many other places, the issues of race, issues of sexuality, and how we go about what we go about. We're not giving the farm away. Some of you immediately tightened up when I said, start listening to people about race. We better, because uh, look around the room. It is an echo chamber, by and large. And some kid is really upset about it. <laughs> really upset about that we, we should listen. <laughs> And so on issues of sexuality, do we, do we give away, are we, are we willing to, to give away our biblical Christian sexual ethic? No. But does that mean that we won't listen to someone who's hurting trying to figure it out through a glass darkly? We better. We better be willing to listen and offer something more than, you idiot, do better. I don't know how many of y'all, that helps. It just doesn't. I've tried it with some of y'all and some things. It's just every time, zero. Stop listening. You become an echo chamber. You be unwilling to have wise conversations. You start to moralize everything, guaranteed you'll wind up arrogant. And then you accept no correction. You are not willing to have anybody push back on you. You want to push. You want to declare. You want to say but you don't want to have somebody push back and go, mm, but what about this? We have to be willing to be corrected. And there has to be some banks of the river, right? It can't just be anything. For us, the scripture is a helpful set of banks of the river, right? Mission and maintenance is helpful. Like we can't get those out of phase. Those are helpful things to help us see who and where we are. Now, he's not telling them this because they got it right, He's telling them this because they got it wrong, which means we will too. And we will have to be patient with each other. And we'll have to give each other room. We can't moralize the fact that we haven't listened. We can't moralize the fact, well, you haven't received correction. It's a process. I don't know a single one of you that once you have declared something or thought something through that you don't get defensive when somebody pushes against it. Hey, I get it. There's room for that, and maybe we have to work through that, 
But if you are going to charge somebody as unredeemable because they didn't listen, because they didn't accept correction, because they, they got defensive, well, good luck finding a community of people who are going to love you well. And so it's important that we be a community that, that wrestles with this, that listens, that accepts correction where it is genuine and it is right and it is pushing us toward Jesus and mission. And notice what else she doesn't do. She does not trust the Lord. We sound like Satan sometimes. But did God really say? I mean, in the Greek. I mean, if you look at the Greek, like from the left angle, does it really mean that? God's been really clear on the things that he finds abominable. Unfortunately, we, like, we kind of like to pick and choose the ones that we think are most abominable. You don't get to do that. The one that's most abominable to help you out is pride. Careful. Because you can do that looking really self-righteous, sanctimonious. And then it says they don't draw near to her God. This means they're not, they're not engaged in worship. So let me give you a litmus test. If you are in worship and you can't hear you, you got something that, that, that's clogging the filter. You got something that's keeping you from being able to hear from the Lord, no matter the condition of the people on the stage. That's a canary in the coal mine to you. You've got to do something to get that right. Because otherwise, it's just going to drain you and drain you and drain us. It won't help draw you closer to the Lord. It will drive you further from him. So this is important that we have these things that we can look to and diagnose ourselves, right? It's important that we have some things that we can say, all right, but if what you heard as I was going through this list, let me back up, and all you could do is think of all the people who don't listen, and you weren't on that list, I think you missed something. If all you could do is think of the people who, <laughs> they don't take correction, they, Cameron don't listen to nobody. I do, it's a small handful. And it's occasional. You just got to catch me on the right day. If all you could do was think about the people who aren't doing this and you're not examining yourself, you have missed it. It's for you to look at you and then for us to diagnose ourselves as a church, as a collective people. It's not enough that you could say, well, I listen, I accept correction, but you go to a church that doesn't. That's not okay. We need to be a church that does. And notice how they got here. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Let me pause here and just say, we've got to remember we're talking about a theocracy. It's not what America is, even though sometimes she likes to pretend she is. She isn't. This is talking about a true theocracy. So the people from the top down are roaring lions. Instead of protecting the people, which remember was one of the key functions of the kings and the princes, and providing for the people, they were consuming them and using them for themselves. Again, who suffers the most in that scenario? The poorest of the poor always. And then her judges, the people who ought to be keeping God's law in front of everyone and making sure that justice was being done, they were evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Again, in our judicial system, I don't care what you think. If you've never gone through it, you don't know what you're talking about. If you've never had to pony up the kind of money it takes to win a judicial case. And you discover, holy moly, this ain't just. Now, 
I do understand people shouldn't kill people. Duh. People shouldn't steal stuff. Duh. Got it. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that. What I am telling you is there's a number of people in prison who aren't guilty. And we've discovered that who totally got railroaded. For those of you who, who went and saw the movie Just Mercy, that's what it was all about. It's a sad fact that we have entire organizations dedicated to trying to unravel those who've been falsely accused. And oftentimes what they find is they were falsely accused because they didn't have the money to do anything else. If you want to have some fun, listen, we could do this. This is a, a thought experiment. Let's go commit a crime, right? And we're not going to let you use any of your resources. You have to use a public defender. And you come back and you report you would scream from the tops of the roofs. Some stuff would actually start to change, actually. Maybe. I don't know. I doubt it because the system is what it is. But in a theocracy, this should not be so. The judges were to be those of God's law. All right, doesn't get any better when we move into the religious sector. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Instead of going after whom they should have gone after, they instead sold their prophecies to the highest bidder. Again, who benefits from a system that is commodified? The rich. How many poor people do you think were able to go and find them a prophet to say something on their behalf and pay for it? This is why it was so startling that Zephaniah was part of the rich class, that he would step forward and risk everything saying what he's saying. Because everybody wanted this man dead. He lost everything doing what he was doing. And then the priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. As we've seen before in other places, we went through Hosea. When you don't have a right understanding of God's law, God's word, God's love for his people, it leads us to destruction. It leads us astray. We do horrible things and claim it in the name of God. So this was why they were in the condition they were in. At every level, everything that the Lord had set up as part of this theocracy had utterly failed. And then we hear these words. The Lord within her is holy. I'm sorry, yeah, is righteous. Now remember from Romans, he is the plumb line. And his righteousness is based on his character. And remember what his character is, steadfast in love. Would that be a good accusation of any given church? Would it be a wonderful thing if people were like, man, that church, they are steadfast in love. They are not quick to judge. They don't come out swinging. They are patient with sinners, even the ones they really disagree with. They're willing to really listen and receive correction. Wow, they're steadfast in love. Long-suffering. Would it be a bad thing for a church to be accused of being long-suffering? You may say, well, I'm doing it right now. It's like, what time is it? <laughs> and thank you. You're loving me well. But that's not what I'm talking about. Would it be a bad thing for a church to be called forgiving? Like, not, not cheap forgiveness, not just, 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 just gloss it over, but actually get involved with helping the fullness of restoration and reconciliation, seeing someone restored, not just, because remember, even Scripture speaks against cheap grace. Don't say to somebody, go and be well while you have coats in the closet. Help them. Help them. Would it be 
a bad thing for us to be declared. We will engage with broken systems that we are willing to say, there is a problem, I'm willing to listen and apply the gifts and the wisdom that I have been given by the Lord God Almighty in a missional fashion. Would that be a bad accusation? Because that is God's character, and that's what it means when it says he's righteous. And he goes on. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. Think of Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations as he is sitting watching Jerusalem burn for her sins, right? So, so Jeremiah gets to see the summary of this. Where this all ends, Jeremiah sits and watches the city burn. And he is broken. And he says, but Lord, your mercies are new every morning. May I lay my mouth in the dust and wait for you. How can you say that about someone if you don't believe them to be good and righteous and loving and ultimately just? But it's a struggle for us because he's so stinking patient. He's so stinking kind. It's like a friend of mine one time asked me, I've, I've talked to you all before about Glenn, who was the guy at the rescue mission who the first night he came in, he sat on the front row. Glenn was from Baltimore, Maryland, which means something. If you don't know what that means, I can't help you. But it means something. He had loose wire in his pacemaker, and he was the angriest man I've ever met in my life. And he looked at me the most, he stared at me way worse than any of y'all ever have. And when I, I got done, I stepped down, and Glenn came up, and he was like 6'5". He's kind of a towering guy, weighed about 300 pounds. He goes, you just spoke for 45 minutes. I ain't ever listened to somebody speak for 45 minutes. I just had to. And he walked away. I didn't know if it was a good thing or not. Well, uh, we used to go once a week. So uh, next time through, somebody came up to me and said, hey, I just want you to know Glenn really hates you. (laughs) Oh, that's the answer to the question. Then he proceeded to sit on the front row, look hard at me, and then go to sleep. Right? So in the Lord's providence, Glenn got kicked out of everywhere he could possibly go. He burned every bridge. The man was... (laughs) <laughs> just comical in this regard. And so we, we find a, a place for him to go. And, and so in that process of sitting down with him, he said, and I can't quote it exactly because there's children present, but he said, why doesn't God kill more jerks? Great question, Glenn. Because you and I are jerks. And if the guillotine fell as swiftly as what you're calling for, our heads would roll equally swiftly. And he went, Huh, I think that's right. And he knew, he knew his own heart. Now, I'm not suggesting that God is not just. And I'm not suggesting that there doesn't come a time when God says no more. And we should be aware of and fearful of that as well. We should seek the Lord while he may be found. Still in the city, says, but the unjust knows no shout. Here next, how he actually had tried to shake them to rattle them by, by taking care of some of the nations. Remember, he had delivered them from Egypt. He says, I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. So he did it to try to get their attention, to show them, I love you. And those who have hurt you, I will bring justice upon at some point. That is good news to all of us if... We are not part of the oppressive. And he goes on. He said, you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. So he's saying the warning of judgment did not have to fall on you. 
I have done everything I can to get your attention. And here's how they responded. But all the more, they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. This is consistent with what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. That if all we have is the law, we're just going to get worse and worse. The law is just going to make us worse and worse, which is why when you turn to someone who doesn't know God and you attack them for their sin, you are driving them further from the Lord, even though you think you are being righteous and standing for something. Talk at individual level, not talking about systems or, or uh Certain things, we're talking about individuals, the people. And so it is critical that we recognize this. This is true of us too. How many of you are helped if I come to you and say, you need to do better and here's the law? (laughs) I know better. I know you better than that. It just makes us worse. If our hearts aren't tendered, if there's not a humility, you cannot receive But notice what he says. That situation's rough. He could have ended it here and said, I'm done with you, I will sweep you away. Listen at the grace of the Lord our God. Therefore, wait for me. What does that mean? It means that he is patient. It means that he's going to continue to bear with them and be among them for a time yet longer. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. That sounds pretty terrible. However, it's important that we actually understand what he's saying here. Let's jump down to verse 9 and give you a little preview of next Sunday, because I don't want to leave you there, because I think that would make your lunch weird. For at that time, I will change the speech upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Purity. He is purifying. Now, if you're wondering, well, what does the New Testament have to say about this? If you don't mind, flip to Hebrews chapter 12. And let me just read 25 through 29. And listen. Listen to what it means for God to be a consuming fire. See what you do and do not refuse him who is speaking. For if... They did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, meaning the prophets. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, meaning Christ himself. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. What he's saying here is not that he will destroy everything in toto, but he is going to purify so that that which is unshaken will remain, which is the new heavens, new earth, which is why in Revelation 22 the, or 21, the, the heavenly city is made up of precious stones, which you find in Genesis 1 and 2. I won't go into all that, but the point being, 
The Lord will preserve what he will preserve, and praise be to God, and he preserves some pretty interesting stuff. Rahab, the harlot. Uh Uh-oh. Ruth, a Moabitess. Uh Uh-oh. Naaman, the Syrian. The widow at Zarephath. Paul, who was Saul, the Pharisee. He preserves far more than we ever would. May we trust him to be good as he claims to be good and just as he claims to be just. And may we reflect his character as a church. Listen to what O. Palmer Robertson says. He says, in this difficult circumstance, the Lord's dependability is seen in the assertion that he shall never fail. Even as the light of each new day surely will dawn, so God himself can never fail. Through all the difficult moments in this era of Judah's history, while every human institution is proved to be corrupt, is that an important word for us today? The Lord is unfailing. He is just. Never on a single day will he do evil. But unfortunately, we will. We do. Now, if in a fallen world, first, it should give you the freedom to repent. The freedom to say, I was wrong and I'm sorry. I got it wrong. I didn't listen. I didn't accept correction where it comes to your attention. It should give you the freedom to say, I am prejudiced about these things. I have these opinions. Remember, an opinion is not a fact, even though you act like it is. I don't, want, I don't want to have to deal with that kind of stuff. I, I, I just have to confess. I, I am busy, and I, I don't want to have to do, like, all this stuff sounds like we're going to start doing a bunch of stuff. I like it how we have it. Confess that you are a maintainer, and you don't really want the missional folks to get turned up too much. And you missional folks confess you don't like the maintainers because you don't think they're doing nothing. That's the beauty of the God that we have. We can be repentant and grow and change to look more like him. It also affords us the ability to love the unlovely, which we are called to do, to actually draw near to those who doubt, to draw near to those who are sinners, who get it wrong, who at the top of their lungs are trying to change the entire system to fit whatever it is they feel today. We do the same. This gives us, because of who God is, the freedom to risk, the freedom to love, and the freedom to be wrong at times, and the freedom to repent. So Zephaniah 3, 1 through 8 teaches us that though our sins affect creation, God's people, and the nations, there is a God who remains faithful in righteousness and justice. What a gift that on this day that we have heard this, we have a visible display of God's righteousness and his justice of his presence with us, that there's this ever-present table in our midst.